Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I am Jack Fowler, the host, the star, the namesake of this show is Victor Davis Hanson, and he is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor is a best-selling author, syndicated columnist, farmer, uh, classicist, He's an expert on just about everything, including politics. This particular show, by the way, as you know, Victor, because we're doing it right now, on the 20th of January, which is a Saturday before the New Hampshire primary, this particular episode will be coming out on uh, Thursday, the th- two days after the primary. Hang in there for the next episode of this show, which the great Sammy Wink will host, Victor, and I'm sure he'll be talking about the outcome of of uh, of uh, the primary But today, Victor, on this episode, we'll talk about some military and foreign policy matters, such as Anthony Blinken proposing yet again the two-state solution for Israel and Palestine. I'm going to ask you, Victor, and I think I know you're going to answer, was was the Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin AWOL when he went AWOL? And we'll, we'll touch on another topic or two, and we'll get to all of that right after these important messages. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Victor, I, I want to mention, by the way, that today, again, January 20th, and tomorrow, the 21st, would be the 100th anniversary of the death of Lenin. And that SOB's project still continues on to this very day uh, in various forms. But, well, I think he certainly has influenced our friends, early enemies in Hamas and uh, in Iran and their hatred for 
for the West and a hatred for Jews. Well, Victor, the Secretary of State of the United States is uh, this past week once again promoting that the solution to Middle East problems, Israel's problem, is a two-state solution, is a state of uh, Palestine. Victor, your thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, the Israelis are not opposed to dealing with Arab states. They deal in a civil manner with Jordan, and they deal with Egypt. Their only objection is that Egyptians, not since 1973, have been coming across their border. They haven't, and the Jordanians haven't either. And Hamas and the Palestinian Authority have had a half century of, of trying to kill Jews. And so they have again and again said, you know, well, you can have Gaza. We don't want it. And they got out. And the only reason they were in there was because the Egyptians said, we don't want it either. And they th that was a battleground in 1967 during the Six-Day War. And afterwards, the Israelis appropriate. They had settlers. And it, Sharon got out. He built a wall. He said, take it. The Egyptians said, no. In fact, if you look at that wall, have you seen the wall between Gaza and Egypt, Jack? It's it's uh, yeah, pretty, it's, it's, it, I mean, they don't mess around. I was, I was, yeah, I wish it was on our border, right? <laughs> well, the International Criminal Court would stop us if we dare did it because it's just, it's just, Bob, why? I mean, it's got, got, got its, you know, it's battlements and everything, but it's just got miles and miles of circular Bob wire everywhere. And so they don't want people from Gaza coming in. So my point is that all... I think what would need to happen is why don't they, why doesn't Blinken just say there will be a self-administered West Bank and the international community will come in here and pour money in and supervise Gaza and they will have a 10-year experiment. If there is no violence and there is a constitutional government, then there will, we will have a timetable toward a state but they never do that they never do that they have election one time and that's it and that's mr abbas was elected how many four-year terms has he had now i don't know eight and how many have the hamas people since 2006 they get elected one time the west comes in we're gonna have a democracy okay yes that's what we want and then the the winner brutalizes or liquidates his enemy and he never comes out of power. So why would you want to turn your security over to that? And so, but, you know, the United States doesn't have to pay for anything. I mean, when we fight our wars with failed states, they're way over there. Israel fights since war. They're right next to them. So they immediately suffer the consequences of any post-war uh, right. utopian project. And, you know, I I, uh, I don't think the United States said after we defeated Japan, oh, okay, you guys are going to have your own government. No, we put MacArthur in there as proconsul, and he had absolute military authority, and he redistributed land, he gave women the right to vote, created a constitutional system, and then and only then did we start to give it autonomy. And no one said we were imperialistic. We did the same thing with Germany. And I don't yeah. nobody said we were imperialistic, but there was a big difference. We defeated and humiliated the enemy. And if you don't do that, then you're not going to be able to impose a peace on them. And that's the problem because we never let Israel defeat the enemy. Right. 
and we haven't let and Hamas is probably going to I didn't think that would happen. I know that they've been degraded, but they're probably going to have a the ninth life again. And um, they're mad now because they blew up the university, which I guess was on top of tunnels. So the Israelis are in this catch 22. They go into these 300 mile labyrinth complex from which there's all these weaponry and munitions and terrorists, and they start to blow them up. And then the whole city starts to collapse, right? right. And then they yeah. say, you collapsed our city. They never give you an alternative, These, especially the pro-Hamas people here. They're doing this. There's all you have to, When you say to them, and I have said this to them, well, why don't you just have an agreement that the people who were responsible, forget about Gazans having culpability, they do, but you know, that happens. Just return all of the hostages and turn over the thousand or two thousand people that are still alive that participated on October 7th and all the people who planned it. How's that? And they, they won't do that. Right. Well, it's all about brinksmanship, right? Yeah. Um, you know, Victor, kind of appropriate uh, or timely, you, 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 I think our, many of our listeners know that at Hoover, you oversee Strategico, which is an online journal. And a few weeks ago, a new issue came out, issue number 89, and it's about urban warfare, old and new. And there's a piece by uh, Joseph Jaffe that touches, more than touches, on what's happening in uh, Gaza. And then there's a, um, a lead piece. Oh, I forget who wrote it, but it's about the Battle of Manila. Uh, that was Peter Mansour. Okay. Uh, he's, a very, he's a very brutal. accomplished professor of military history. He was chief of staff for David Petraeus in Iraq, and he teaches uh, at the Ohio State University. Well, you want to tell us about this new issue of strategic? Well, I, I, we were trying. We're, the, the prior 88 was on proxy wars, and we have a number of them, and it dealt in specifically in on Ukraine. I might just add that we're going to have a huge conference. I think we have 80 people stated to come in March at Stanford, and we're going to discuss proxy wars. I think we're going to start off with a classical historian, probably Paul Ray, and he's going to give us a description of all of the dynamics of Athens and Sparta fighting in a proxy war over Sicily. And then we're going to talk about the Israelis proxy wars and then the Cold War proxy wars. And then we're going to cap off the eight hour day with the, any information that we learned or historical patterns across time of space and how they apply to um, both Ukraine and um, the proxy war between, I guess it's Israel and Iran, or maybe even the United States, Israel versus Iran, as it plays out in Gaza. And there are certain certain things you can determine about. The same thing is about urban warfare. There are certain ratios about how many people in an urban context, and even a general war, die per numbers of militants or armed forces or soldier people die. And from what we can tell, I mean, the usual ratio is around nine to one civilians will be, that's what pretty much uh, happened in Mosul and Fallujah, eight to one. And from what we can tell, I think the Israelis, Israelis are making a pretty good argument that they're, they're two to one or one to one. In other words, they may have killed 15 to 20,000 Hamas people. I don't know how many civilians, but 
I think the figures that we're getting from the Hamas authorities are not only inflated, but they're including as civilians the Hamas people themselves, the uh, the militant terrorists. So we and we talk about the Manila thing is very infamous because um, there were a lot of people who advised MacArthur not to send uh, U.S. troops into Manila, and that was kind of we had to destroy the city to save it. It was a bloodbath. Japanese wanted us to go in, sort of like they Iwo Jima and Okinawa. And it was kind of everybody should remember about the Pacific Theater. The the really bloody battles were not in nineteen end of December forty one. They were not in forty two. They were not so much in forty three. They were forty four, late forty four, and especially in forty five. And why was that? Because our, our policy of unconditional surrender meant we were not just going to defeat the Japanese in conventional battles and have them surrender or have an armistice, like World War One, for example, we were going to force an unconditional surrender, destroy the, the militarist government, and make sure they could never do that again. And that meant, you know, they had a military of three million people, and they knew we were coming, and they were very sophisticated in their tactics and weaponry, and it was, it was terrible, 44 and 45. And Manila was one of them. So it's it's talking about the rules of war as well uh, in an urban context. I think John Yu has some good thoughts about that. So it's a good issue, and, and that's going to be replayed in March at our conference. To our, to our listeners. On proxy uh, wars, and we'll have some about because these proxy wars, as we see in Ukraine and, and in um, Gaza, tend to be urban war these days. Well, if you if you Google or search for Strategica, you will it will take you to the Hoover Institution's page, and it's free. And there are three articles in this issue, and there's many still very worthwhile back issues in in this uh, series. So, Victor, um, you know, this reminds me. Since we're talking about military, we should talk about we'll get your thoughts on two generals, and why don't we do that right after? Uh, these important messages. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. Edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. I want this is a lead in here to let our listeners, particularly our new listeners, know that Victor's website official is the Blade of Perseus. Uh, the web address is victorhanson.com. Go there and you will find. Uh, links to all the articles he writes for American Greatness in his syndicated, weekly syndicated column, the archives of this show, Victor's appearances on other podcasts and other 
Entities on Common Knowledge, links to his forthcoming book, which, by the way, will be out in May, and um, links to his Ultra articles, which are the pieces three or so a week that he writes exclusively for The Blade of Perseus. You need to subscribe in order to read them. That's $5 a month. Five bucks gets you in the door. Discounted for the full year at $50. So check that out, please. And on occasion, Victor responds to um, angry readers, and he, he responds in the ultra pieces. But there was one piece that was titled Not So Angry Reader, and this is uh, from... Um, a woman, Barbara Tonchef, and she politely uh, challenges you about something you said about uh, General Robert E. Lee. And so two, I mentioned before the break, two generals. One, Victor, would be interesting, the, your thoughts on Robert E. Lee, since you just wrote about them uh, for the website. And then let's get your thoughts about Lloyd Austin's the Secretary of Defense's sickness where he just disappeared and uh, it was it i don't know victor if, if a, a private disappeared like that would he not be a wall is the secretary of defense not a wall but general lee and then general austin well uh, i had a, a very nice letter it was critical but it was well it wasn't an angry reader in the sense there was not all capitals and the f word and the s word and all of that stuff it was it was just angry that in the course of our podcast, I had not, I had deprecated Robert E. Lee. I don't think I did deprecate him, but I didn't, I didn't buy into the marbleized Robert E. Lee. And there's a good biography. I reviewed it in the uh, Claremont Review, a long essay by Alan Guelzo, who's a great historian. Yeah, and, oh, he's uh, terrific. Yeah, he is. And it's a very balanced. And my, just to summarize in reply to the not so angry reader, Robert E. Lee was the most distinguished soldier in 1860 in the U.S. military. Um, there were two of them, probably. Albert Sidney Johnson, who was killed at Shiloh, and Robert E. Lee, who had distinguished himself in the Mexican War and the John Brown Rebellion. He was from a light horse, Harry Lee. Uh, the family, he was from an old Revolutionary War. He Arlington National Cemetery was right there. And it was not on, it was not clear that he was going to join the Confederacy because Virginia, remember, there of the eleven Confederate states, it was the last one to succeed because of its proximity to Washington and people, the the absorption and the osmosis between Washingtonians and Virginians, and all of the presidents that had been Virginia. I think they had more presidents from Virginia at that time than any other state. So the. It was he didn't. It wasn't clear that Lee wouldn't be offered by Winfield Scott the uh, command of Union Armies. In fact, he was, and then he declined when Virginia succeeded. And so then, my point was that he was a good man. He was uh, a mannered man. He took on enormous responsibility for a family that was facing bankruptcy and impoverished. He probably wanted to free slaves. There's some suggestions he whipped a slave on one occasion, but he did probably want to free them, but he felt he didn't have the labor or the money. So he was, whether he liked it or not, he was fighting for a bad cause. And he was a good man. That happens. You can make the argument that there were some uh, Third Reich generals that were good men, that General von Ritter or 
even Rommel in some ways. Uh, and uh, they fought for bad causes. But my point in is that he was a master of defense and he didn't have the strategic, economic, financial, industrial knowledge of what makes a a modern industrial state win and what makes one lose. So I contrasted him with William Tecumseh Sherman, who was a much more uncouth and probably unstable person than Robert E. Lee. But in terms of understanding what would happen if there was a civil war and who would win and why they would win and which strategies would be successful and which would not, Sherman was an authentic military genius. And he said that to David Boyd, a fellow professor at what would become the Louisiana State University when he was uh, the president right before uh, the outbreak. He said, you people in the South, you're wonderful fighters. You'll win for the couple of years, but you don't make anything. You don't even make the insulators on your telegraph pole. They have 10 times the rail. They have 10 times the industry. They have a huge population and they're not wimps. These people in Minnesota and Michigan and Wisconsin, these are some of the toughest people in the world. They do their own work. You'd be insane to fight these people and you will lose. And I don't want you to lose. And that was kind of a great speech he gave. And then he went north and he had some troubled times, but, you know, he was lost his command. He said that they said he was crazy, Jack, because he said it might take three or four hundred thousand people that to to subdue the South. And that's exactly what happened. But he was reborn at Shiloh. And then he he and Grant had this very successful partnership. And they understood something that they had to go down into the South. And the South did not have to go to the North unless they were going to try some strategic engagement. But the South could be fortress South. It was the size of Western Europe. And so what did the South do? They were they had a Scotch-Irish military tradition, the Clausewitzian idea of the major battle. Beat them, humiliate them. And yet they did that at first and second bull run. They did it at Fredericksburg. They did it at Chancellor. It didn't work because of the resources of the North that could afford to do that. The only chance they had was not to get Lincoln reelected. And that was, if they won a decisive battle and humiliated the Lincoln administration, then maybe you would get General McClellan and maybe he would allow a, uh, a peace and the Confederacy could you know, succeed. That's what they were hoping. That was the only strategy that was viable. My point is that Robert E. Lee then went into Pennsylvania with a beautiful big army of 70,000 people, and he destroyed it. And he destroyed it, of course, at Gettysburg. And there were people, you know, he had two brilliant corps commanders. Unfortunately, one of them, Stonewall Jackson, was killed, and the other, Longstreet, the next year was severely injured. And Longstreet told him as very famously to not have a headache, a head on battle with the Army of the Potomac and General Meade, but to sidestep them in Sherman-esque fashion, which Sherman would do the next year in Georgia, go to Washington, just like Jubilee Early later would try to, and humiliate the government and take Washington. They probably could have done it, but he didn't. And the rest is history. And yet Lee, in 1864, when he was defending the area around Richmond, he almost won the war in the sense that Ulysses S. Grant had to destroy the Confederacy inside the Confederacy, and he lost 100, 
6,000 casualties. And those battles of 1864 are just nightmarish. Mary Todd Lincoln, remember, said he's that butcher. I don't want anything to do with that butcher. That was First Lady said that. And uh, he won. We won the war because this maniac, which the letter writer mentions, who doesn't like him because she said he was an adulterer and sex. He came up with the idea that this is a martial culture that puts a high primary premium on battle efficacy and chivalry. And we're going to go down there with a huge army of the West. And these are not people from the East Coast. No offense, Jack but from many Minnesota and Michigan and Iowa and Illinois and their homestead farmers, and they're tough. And we're going to cut the rail lines and we're not going to depend on them. We don't care about the Nathan Bedford forest of the world. If they try to sabotage it, we're going to live off the land and we're going to take Atlanta before the election and we're going to sure. destroy it. And that is going to get Lincoln reelected. And that's exactly what he did. And then they said, he's done. And he said, no, I'm not. Lincoln said he went in some hole, and I don't know where what hole he's going to come out of. And he took this huge army, and he made a 50-mile swath through Georgia, and he ended up at Savannah right before Christmas. He did not destroy. He did not kill very many people. There was, there were some rapes, and there was some foraging and, and destruction. But he concentrated on destroying rail lines, government buildings, and plantations. They freed 40,000 slaves in the process. Was he a modern liberal? No. He was uncouth. He probably had racist sentiments, although no no union general probably did more for slaves than William Tecumseh Sherman by freeing them. He gave them the land, the islands off the Carolinas. When he got to Savannah, they said, he's done. He said, no, I'm not done. I've got to relieve the pressure off Grant. So he corduroyed roll, roads, and he went right through the swamps and back, back country of the two Carolinas and pulled up in pretty much uh, on the wrongs on the other side of Richmond. And that was what forced the South to, to concede. And when you read his memoirs and they're beautifully written as our grants, he's talking about how to use the manpower of the North and how to invade the South without having a grant Clausewitzian bloodbath. And he could do it. He felt by humiliating the plantation class, by creating divisions between Southern society, between the white poor who did not own slaves, 97% of the population did not own slaves, and the plantation class. So he, he centered on the Hal Cobbs and the Wade Hamptons of the world and wanted to humiliate them. And he was very clear about it. What And then finally, was he... She said that he was an adulterer and he had a mulatto girl. That was sort anybody in the North who was an enemy of the South. They always said the same thing. He had a mulatto girlfriend. So I don't know contemporary letters. He was pretty much under the public eye all the time in those marches. So where I don't I think that is verifiable. It is verifiable that in after the Civil War and after his uh Western career as head of the U.S. Army in the West and the so-called Indian Wars. Um, he moved to New York and he was a fixture of the New York uh, play scene, Shakespearean plays, drama. And yeah. during that time, he had enormous power and uh, in, in influence. Things like he could he could influence 
how many mon- there was a monument craze in both in the south and the north, but especially in the north. And if you wanted a contract to be a sculptress or a sculptor, you went to William Tecumseh Sherman. And a lot of young women did who didn't have avenues. And there are some letters that suggest he was romantically involved. He was an orphan from his father, and he had been adopted by one of the wealthiest families in Ohio. His, his brother, John Sherman, was the author of the Sherman Antitrust Act. Very well-connected family, and their father died, and they were destitute. And this very, very wealthy Ewing family nearby adopted him, and he married his foster sister, Eleanor. And she was a wonderful wife, and when he had depression, or he, he, he held 17 jobs before the Civil War. He was a complete failure. He was a teamster. He was a banker. He was a railroad guy. He tried insurance. He tried law. He tried everything. But he had one was talent. He out, was he out in San Francisco? Doing yes, something? he was. But William Tecumseh Sherman was a man of principle. And so when the bank collapsed because of shenanigans back east and he had enticed depositors, he paid them back himself. Uh, he was a he was at odds with what he thought was modernism. He was very stubborn, but he was very principled. He dressed like a private. He slept on the ground. The men called him Uncle Billy. They loved him. He created the most powerful army in the U.S. history up to that point. When they went into the military parade following Appomattox and they marched in Washington, D.C., that he did not change their uniforms. He did not give brand new blue uniforms like the Army of the Potomac. They were not people from immigrant countries. They were not urban people. They were suntanned and they were dressed in rags after marching for a year through Georgia, across Georgia, up through the Carolinas. They lived off the land and they had black pioneers, brilliant black people they had freed who were able to help them forage, to build roads, engineers, as they called them, and pioneers, they called them as well. So when they marched, they had the whole army. He refused to have new uniforms. And they were these big, tough farmers that had won the war, and they marched right after the army. And the German military attaché in Europe and said, oh, my God, this army could take anything in Europe. I'm glad that they're going to disperse. And he hated the Secretary of War, uh, Stanton, who had treated him very terribly. And people wrote at the time, if Sherman wants to take over the, the government, he can without army. And he just, he wanted people almost to think he could. And then he he uh, he met across the Potomac, said it's over, and peacefully disbanded the Army of the West. And uh, that was the end of it. But he, I think you could make the argument, and I've written about him in a number of books. I think you could make the argument yeah. that he won the Civil War in a way. I mean, they, I, that's kind of unfair to Grant. He said at one time, and Lincoln said there was a terrible arithmetic, and he said there had to be 300,000 Cavaliers that were killed. It was, it was kind of ruthless. And Grant did that. 700,000 people were killed. It was an, uh, a horrible bloodbath. Yeah. But, they worked in tandem. So if you're a Grant fan, he held Lee's fixed so that Sherman could come around the rear and destroy infrastructure and break down the civic solidarity of the South. If you're a Sherman fan, why Grant was bogged down and not making progress, this man destroyed the the solidarity of the South. So, they, But they were complementary. And final thing is, 
He was very similar, and I wrote that in The Soul of Battle, to George Patton. And he was an authentic military genius who was very, very learned, philosophical, and understand the, the larger play of war, that you were fighting against not just an army on the field, but a psychology, an ideology, a national character, an economic infrastructure. And Patton knew that. And he, if he was a philandering person as a letter writer, alleges that would have been in his 60s or late 50s and 60s when he was in New York. And there are some letters, as I said, that survived that are sort of, it's hard to tell in the Victorian period what people said when they said, you're very beautiful and I love the way the hair falls upon your shoulder and all that. But he wrote letters like that to some women, but he was very similar to Patton. And that one thing that- Victor, I do similar, want to- uh, I better stop, uh, but I'll just finish Well, by that's saying, okay. Well- <laughs> I'll just Go say I'll, I'll just say one similar thing. Sure. George Patton was saved by his wife. She was from the Ayer drug family, one of the wealthiest family in the United States, Beatrice. And she was absolutely devoted to him, not just because she was in love with him and he was the father of their children. They've been married. But she understood that without George Patton, the United States Army would be in big trouble. And she was going to do everything she could to make sure that he was promoted to the position that he deserved by his talent. And when he slapped two soldiers in Sicily on two occasions, she was the one that stood by him and used all of her influence to make sure the Roosevelt administration put pressure on Marshall, who put pressure on Eisenhower to get him back in, even though he didn't get the participated in D-Day. And she was very similar to uh, Eleanor Ewing in their absolute devotion. And they were brilliant women, and they kept these two mercurial people viable when both of them were going to be relieved. Sherman, because he had a so-called mental breakdown, I don't believe he did, but that was what he said he was crazy, and Patton because he'd slapped soldiers. And if they had been off the battlefield, the Union and the American armies would, be, would have been in bad trouble. Well, that was terrific. Um, although about 10 minutes ago, I did want to pipe up and say something in defense of the Irish Brigade and those wimpy Easterners. I'm, I'm a quarter Irish. My grandmother was a full-blooded Irish woman on my mother's side. Okay. Let's get your take on the second part of that question, which uh, had to do with General Lloyd Austin and his uh, disappearance from the Pentagon. Okay. He was in a bad way. He went to, the, went to Walter Reed, I think, and uh cancer uh, issues but uh he was off the grid and and got a a blessing or not a no, no recrimination from president biden uh victor can you think of anything in american military history where such a thing happened and how egregious was this act and uh, as i asked earlier like what if a, what if a private what if a corporal had done something comparable there would have been penalties i think your We've thoughts had this happen a lot i mean but it's pretty they either in the past when curtis lemay was Right before the war, he was piling the B-17 all the way down to, I think it was the tip of Chile. He got Bell's palsy. He just put a cigar in his mouth so that people didn't want to see the spit coming from one side of a paralyzed mouth. But people were aware of it. Ike had heart problems. He hurt his knee terribly uh, during the Normandy campaign. He couldn't walk. Uh, people were aware of that. Uh, Matthew Ridgway had a heart attack right after World War II, and, they, and he was pretty candid, and he said he could still, they wanted to 
and they discussed it. So people really, I mean, that generation was more likely to hide physical ailments than our generation. But I think what Austin did, there were two things he did, and I can understand why he did them, and they were both, I think, naive. The first is he works for a president that's not there. So I doubt that Joe Biden, in the fashion of most presidents, called him every day and said, "How? What are? what's going on with the Houthis? What are we going to do? What's the capability? Do we, can we bomb? Can we use cruise missiles? Can we take these out? What is the deterrent force of our carrier? Uh, are we going to have another carrier come back in the Mediterranean? What do we do with Hezbollah? Those questions are not being asked by Joe Biden because he doesn't know them. He doesn't know where he is. So Austin feel, felt, well, you know what? I have this prostate cancer diagnosis. He didn't tell anybody, of course. But nobody's going to know because Joe Biden's never going to call me. He never calls me. So I'll just go in. And the second thing is I think modern medicine has downplayed the severity of a lot of our maladies. You know, you meet people who heroically are fighting lymphoma or even leukemia. And it's suggested that they, these are all treatable diseases, and they are, but they're very, they can be very debilitating and deadly. So I think in the case of, I know so many people that have had prostate cancer, and they have been treated, and they have had very little downtime. They've either had the radioactive pellets, or they've had the prostate removed, or they've had uh, hormone therapy. There's all different strategies. And I guess we all have a rendezvous with it. But my point is that it's a doable. So I think that people told Austin, yes, you have prostate, but you usually die from prostate cancer unless it's a very virulent form rather than from it. So you can come in and we will do this procedure. You know, I guess he called it a minor. I don't think it's ever minor when you have cancer, but that's how they termed it. And they either were going to do something of the things I just, one of those types of, of procedures, and he was going to go home, and that happened. But then he got infected. Um, and he's, you know, he's 70 years old, and he's not necessarily trim, and you don't get the feeling that he's a jogger. He's too heavy. And so he had comorbidities. And then he got incapacitated and he had to go in emergency into the intensive care and nobody knew it. And his second in command was on vacation and the spokesman who's supposed to apprise us of this had the flu supposedly. So who was in charge? And so then your question is, was he AWOL? And the question, the answer to that, what would he do if his CENTCOM commander, commander or his African commander, if he called him up and they said he's in the hospital? And Lloyd Allison said, what? Where's my CENTCOM commander? I want to find out what we're, what's the deal with Iran right now. And they said, well, he didn't want to tell you, but he is in the hospital. He's having a procedure. And it would have been easy. He thought he could talk to you on the phone, but he had complications. So he's in intense. What? Lloyd Austin would have removed him. I'm sure of it. And he probably would have anybody in the military. And if you were a private or a sergeant and you said you didn't tell anybody that you just you're supposed to report for duty on Monday, you have a Sunday off, you go in for a surgical procedure and it doesn't work and you're in the intensive care and you don't tell people uh, that matter, that is the chain of command. And by that, I mean that who's higher than the department of defense secretary, and that's the president. Apparently, he didn't notify the president. So is he going to be removed? No. 
Why is he not going to be removed? Because Joe Biden is in an election year right now, and you don't, in his way of thinking, you do not remove an African-American general, not after Claudine Gay. It's going to be, people have already suggested that. I'm, I'm not being original here. I just am reflecting what I've been reading. And if he did remove him, people were, would say to Joe Biden, well, you're you're the president and we don't even know where you are. You don't show up for five days. We didn't hear him, I think, two weeks ago for five days. So he's he's gone three or four days a week in his vacation home or his main residence in Delaware. So he is not going to be able to condemn him. It's kind of like yeah. Donald Trump. He cannot. There's been rumors. I don't know if you saw it in the Daily Mail, Jack, about uh, when Nikki Haley's. Yeah, uh, she she was accused of having two affairs, and the, yes, and their sexual liaison. The partners each signed affidavits. I don't know quite why they did that. It seems to me very ungentlemanly. Like if you have a, a liaison with someone, you don't sign it. You don't publicize it. But maybe they apparently they got angry that she was bragging on her marriage and all of the loyalty that she had expressed to her husband and family when he was deployed for months at a time. These two people yeah. who had had supposed liaisons, and it's not confirmed, but they said, oh, this is hypocritical. And they probably had a political agenda as well. But my point is Donald Trump is not going to use that. He's just not going to yes. say, okay. how right. dare you? Your husband, yeah. your husband was work, uh, and you know he can't because of Stormy and all of these other things. Right. So my point is that Joe Biden is not going to say, "You mean you didn't show up for work?" <laughs> What's he going to say? And yeah. Joe, you haven't showed up for work for probably I don't know three hundred days since you've been president. So it's gonna yeah. it's gonna blow over, but it's a bad precedent and. The problem I have with it is that um, there is something very wrong with the Pentagon and with our armed forces. And I'm a big supporter. I think everybody realizes what I've written of generals and admirals. There are some wonderful generals and admirals at the Hoover Institution. I've met a lot of colonels. They're good friends of mine. But let's be frank. We're, we're short 30,000, 40,000 soldiers. And they said that it had nothing to do with anything other than than obesity or gang activity or low unemployment and comp competition against private enterprise. But we now know the statistics that so-called white males from the South or rural areas, or the suburbs are just 50% fall off. They're not joining. And we know why they're not joining, despite the denials of the Pentagon. They're sick and tired of being saying, saying that they're white supremacists or they're white privileged. When they run an internal investigation to hound them, they find there was nothing there to begin with. It should have never been investigated because it didn't exist. They're angry because 8,400 of them have been drummed out of the military. They're angry because we were humiliated in Afghanistan. They're angry because it seems like so many of our flag officers at two, three, four stars revolve right into multi-million dollar lucrative lobbying and defense contractor board seats. They're angry that our generals tend to be very political. Mark Milley, the Chinese connection going over to his Chinese counterpart, warning him against Donald Trump. Um, saying that he shouldn't have had a photo op with the president, which they all do. 
all this politicalization and then the retired generals calling the president the commander-in-chief in violation of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, calling him Mussolini or Hitler-like or Auschwitz cages and all this stuff, liar. It's not good, Jack. And so this incident is a reflection that let's hope that somebody comes in, a strong secretary of defense, and says the following. We are not going to promote and retain and recruit people on their race or gender. We're not going to, we want to know how well they are on the battlefield as leaders or administrators, but we're not going to have this trans, gay, feminist, marginalized person criteria that hampers built battlefield efficacy. doesn't mean you can't be sensitive to di different backgrounds, but that's not going to be the primary. And we have something wrong with military procurement. We have weapons that are too expensive and too few. And I don't know why it is, but when you retire and you're a one, two, three star, four general, you're not going to be able to work for a defense contractor or serve on a lucrative board for 10 years. And we're going to go back to no more exemptions. If you are a general, you're not going to be able to be secretary of defense for 10 years. And we've waived that in the last two cases. So I think we need radical changes and we need to have a whole different approach to our munitions acquisition. We really need to build a lot of drones, a lot of cheap uh, weapon systems and stop building $14 billion carriers that can't go into the South China Sea if Taiwan is in danger or yeah. uh, putting 5,000 men and $14 billion in one confined space in the era of small, cheap drones. So. If somebody from the Navy can say that they're going to put the USS Gerald Ford and 5,000 of our fellow Americans right off the coast of Taiwan, and it's perfectly able to perfect it, to defend itself from 4,000 swarming drones that are coming in at two in the morning and missiles that are about three feet long that are skimming across the ocean about an inch above the water, and they can defend it, that's fine, but I don't think they can. So we need to make more weapons, a lot more cheaper, more numerous, et cetera. And we need to rearm. We, we really do. If you want to have peace, you're going to have to prepare for war. And so is Europe. Well, yeah, let's, let's not up, uh, not talk about it. Yeah, let's uh, uh, talk about Europe preparing for war, Victor. There's a power line and a piece up by John Hendricker. And let's get to that after this um, Final important message. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes. 
30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Victor, before we um, get your thoughts on Europe and war drums, I just want to take a minute to uh, welcome back one of our sponsors, Hillsdale College. And our listeners should know that Victor is one of the professors in three of the over 40 free online courses uh, that Hillsdale offers. The the first course is uh, titled American Citizenship and Its Decline, and that's based on Victor's book, The Dying Citizen. The second course is titled The Second World Wars, based on Victor's book, book, best-selling book by the same name. By the way, The Dying Citizen was a best-selling book, too. Didn't want to discount it. And then the third course that Hillsdale is offering with uh, Victor's participation and leadership is titled Athens and Sparta, which is partly based on Victor's book, A War Like No Other, How the Athenians and Spartans Fought the Peloponnesian War. These courses are seven to nine episodes long. They're self-paced, so you can take them whenever and wherever. So when this podcast is over, go to hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. It's free and it's easy to get started. That's hillsdale.edu slash vdh to start. Hillsdale.edu slash vdh. And we thank the good people at Hillsdale College for sponsoring the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, this past week on Powerline, which some listeners will remember is the first, I think it's the first website you uh, uh, go to every day, Victor. John Hindraker, one of the three uh, potentates there, uh, wrote a piece. Um, it's titled War Drums in Europe. Suddenly there is talk everywhere of war in Europe. On Monday, I, this is John, wrote about, and he links to warnings from uh, Germany and Sweden of a possible Russian invasion. The drumbeat continues, and he he puts in some significant links from a variety of British newspapers, uh, war, you know, fretting about war. And this is how his piece ends, and just bear with me here, and Victor, then we'll get your thoughts. He writes, what to make of this talk about war? European leaders obviously are preparing their citizens, i.e. voters, for the reality that the decades of easy living since the fall of the Soviet Union are likely over. More will need to be spent on defense. Armies and navies will need to grow. Complacency will need to give way to vigilance. There is another theme, too, that Europeans can't rely on America to bail them out. The U.S., they say, is preoccupied with our Pacific rivalry with China, a far more formidable adversary than Russia. We Americans, Europeans are saying, uh, except Europeans to be mostly responsible for dealing with a threat to Europe, which is not unreasonable. The 20th century was most was mostly defined by conflicts that originated in Europe. For a time, it seemed that such armed conflicts were a thing of the past, but perhaps not. Very worrisome, Victor, but um, no mincing words there. Your thoughts? Well, you can start on the Russians. I think we have discussed on this podcast, and I have written too much about it, about the Russian way of war. And we look at 
1939 in Finland where they took a terrible beating. We all praise the Finns, but we forget the denouement, and that is they won. And they and they didn't care about the cost. And yes, they took a terrible beating in 1941 in July, August, September, and all the way into 42, even to 43 until Kursk. And they won. They lost 20 million people, the Russian people, and 10 million in the military, but they won. And they went into Afghanistan and they fought 10 years. But when they left, they didn't leave the way we did. They went in an orderly fashion out with their equipment. So my point is, and I could go on about the invasion of anytime they go outside of Russia, they have problems. But I think this reaction is they looked at this and they said, after that miraculous and brave defense of Kiev by the Ukrainians in February, March of 2022, they said, you know what? The Russians are paper tiger. They're terrible. And I think a lot of us said, yeah, they are. They, they're fighting outside their borders. But what usually happens, they still win because they don't care about casualties or they're autocratic. And they have a when you fight near their borders, they get patriotic and they do better on border. They do better when they fight on their home soil, but they do pretty well when they're fighting near their border. They don't do well when they're a long way away. OK, so. They've watched this Ukraine war, and they were told that the spring and summer offensive were going to be Patton-esque. They were going to just punch through. They had Leopard tanks. They had Abrams tanks. They had all sorts of anti-tank weapons. They had sophisticated Bradleys. And you looked at the aerial photo of the Russian defenses, and you said, please don't do that. Why would you do that? You have only one-fourth the amount of soldiers your economy is 10% at the size of the Russian economy. You have one thirtieth of the territory. Please don't take those precious soldiers and try to, like our stupid ram, blast through that fortified two miles of tank traps and drones and mines and concrete and ball. Don't do it. And they did. And it didn't work. And now people are terrified of the Russians. They thought, oh, my God, they've lost three or 400,000 casualties. And they've got these sanctions and they've got all of the Western world against them. And they're winning the war. How can this be? We better be careful. They could do the same thing to Sweden and the low and the Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia. So they're in a, a period of paranoia. And they know they're not very well armed. Finland and Sweden Sweden would put up a good fight. But uh, the rest of Europe and Poland would put up a good fight. But Western Europe, no, they don't have the weapons. They don't have the attitude. They're not prepped. And we are so worried about Taiwan and China. And we we have depleted our stocks by supplying Ukraine and Israel and leaving them in Afghanistan. We're not prepared. And so this is this general sense in Europe. Wait a minute. Russia is not fatally weakened. We thought that Ukraine would just bleed them white and then we wouldn't have to worry about Putin. But now that he's in a warlike mood and he's recalibrated the Russian economy and our so-called friends like the Indians and the Chinese are buying his oil and Iran is supplying them, he, he's a monster and he could go into our countries and we're not prepared. So there's this paranoia now in Europe and maybe good, maybe they'll start to rearm, but they remind me so much of the French army uh, 
uh, in the 1930s or late 20s. They did. They had won the war and they did not want to fight another war. And Germany had lost the war and they very much wanted to fight another war. And they were a socialist country, Germany. Uh, France was. And socialism was very hard to, to prepare, uh, whether financial or military or manpower deterrence. And the army of France that had stood firm at Verdun collapsed six weeks. And so that's what I think they're worried about. We have socialist economies. We don't create enough munitions. Uh, we don't have a, a sufficient arms industry. We haven't inculcated civic virtue and patriotism in our youth. You can't make disparate peoples want to fight on behalf of the EU flag. Just, they're not going to do it. You can't tell a kid in Florence to leave his cappuccino table and run over to fight in the dirty muck of Poland for the idea of the EU or the idea of NATO. You've got to have a patriotic nationalistic army that is self-contained. And if they're going to fight, they're going to be side by side as national units. Very well right. armed. This, the tragedy of it all is the West makes much better weapons in isolation and in theory than does Russia. And we always have, we always will, and China too. But we don't make them in enough numbers and enough, uh, they're not dispersed throughout the, the necessary countries and they're not regularized. And so it doesn't really matter. The Russians know how to make basic deadly weapons in great numbers and they don't freeze when their young people get killed. At least so far they haven't. And the Europeans understand that now and they're terrified and that they look at the Biden administration. They praise the Biden administration at Davos. They praise Blinken. He's the kind of uh, international diplomat and he's the uh, big supporter of NATO. But secretly, when they're privately, they say, I think Donald Trump right now because he mm -hmm. would build up the unit the military and he'd scream and yell at us. But if they crossed our borders, he'd come. And that's that's their dilemma. Well, Victor, let's uh, conclude. We have a few minutes left and shift from all these thoughts military to thoughts uh, hysterical. And you've written, and I don't mean funny hysterical. I mean, uh, your most recent syndicated column, which is getting quite a lot of attention and talk, the hysterical style in American politics. And I think anyone, Victor, that has a has a phone sees a video and uh, increasingly rampantly uh, uh, ideologues in the streets have taken, yeah, to what we would consider, you're hysterical, the kind of thing that once upon a time required a slap in the face to get you out of it, you know, screaming and tantrums and antics um that are uh you know require psychiatric care i think but tell us victor about this uh column and why you wrote it well it, it starts with the idea that most people innately don't believe uh in socialism every time it's worked uh and it's a quality of result and people are not rewarded on their individual work and initiative it, it doesn't work and this administration is the most socialist we've seen since the 30s and nothing is working and so they need a majority to hold on to power and so they have they have to have a crisis 
they have to have a crisis. And so what I was talking about is to start off, this crisis is that Donald Trump is a monster and he's a threat to democracy and he's going to be revengeful. It's just projection of what they would do if they were in his places and had suffered like he did. And so they want to terrify people just like during COVID. They said, oh, my God, we're going to there's no cure. It's going to we've got to vaccinate everybody. and We've just got to turn over everything to Moderna and Pfizer and save us. And six feet, it's scientifically proven you have to have six feet and we're going to shut down the whole country in a quarantine. And you ask, where is the scientific evidence? Doesn't matter. And, you know, people were crazy and we shut down the schools and we had an epidemic of miscancer cancer appointments, uh, morbidities, suicides, drug abuse, familial abuse, spousal abuse, economic destruction. Still haven't recovered. It explains the George Floyd. But under that guise, people like Gavin Newsom said, hey, we can get a more progressive capitalism. And he did. And Hillary said, we can expand health care. And she did. And Jane Fonda said, this is a way to get rid of Trump. And they did. And we can go back to George Floyd. All this, They had wanted to defund the police for a long time. The BLM Antifa people wanted their agenda to be mainstream. They wanted to judge people on the basis of their race. They wanted thousands of diversity, equity, and inclusion. They wanted loyalty oaths, DEI, McCarthy-era-like oaths. And they could never get it through. But you tell everybody that... George Floyd was a saint and all these riot, and they looked at 120 days of rioting and 35 people killed and 1,500 officers hurt and injured. And as I said, courthouses and police things going up in smoke and $2 billion of damage and downtown Washington, downtown Seattle occupied. They said, oh, my God, I get in a fetal position. What do you want? What do you want? We'll give it to you. And that's what happened. And they did the same thing with September 2008. People forget that that was a meltdown around the 7th, 8th of September. And you had September of Bush, October of Bush, November of Bush, December of Bush, and January of Bush, almost five months. And in that time, they had saved the country and they had done things that were pretty left wing with the bailout of Wall Street, whatever you want to say, things were stable. And we were starting to go into recovery mode. And had they, when the Obama administration had come in, they just said, you know what, we're going to allow the economy to recover naturally. And what did Rahm Emanuel say? You never let a serious crisis go to West. So it was hysterical. And all of a sudden, they pushed through Obamacare and they pushed through all time new regulations and they pushed through a higher tax rate and they stalled the economy from 2008 all the way to 2017. Basically, we didn't need to do that. So what I'm getting at is whether it was the COVID or whether it was Donald Trump is going to kill us all or whether it was George Floyd shows you that the police are mowing down people with machine guns and we've got to defund them or whether it was the economic crisis where we're all going to be impoverished and unless we nationalize this and give money to Solyndra and shovel ready jobs and borrow four trillion. They always have to seize on a catastrophe. And then they get through what they want. And what they want is Donald Trump is going to destroy democracy, insurrection, January 6th. A good exit. That was a buffoonish riot. That was a peaceful 
protests that turned into a buffoonish riot. And anybody who went in the Capitol when it was against the law to go in the Capitol should have been prosecuted. It was not an armed insurrection. There was no one that those protesters killed, not one person. There were not five officers who were killed. Officer Sicknick was not killed. There were five people killed. Four of them were on the protester side, and one of them was shot while unarmed by going through an already broken window. And so... Did you did you see how he... I was right to say the cop that shot her lied? Officer Bird, yes, he did lie. And yeah. now we learn only way after that it wasn't just that he left his uh, his weapon in a restroom. He'd had a number of complaints against him. He was not a good officer. And when you look at the different angles of the film, you see that there were people in body armor who were fully armed that were much closer to her and right looking at her. And they didn't draw their weapons. He was at an angle and he shot her. And, in he, said, and, and he said after the shots like it was it seemed like he was covering up in a sense like uh he shot her killed her or shot her on the side she bled to death and then um then he put out a minute later some like I've, i'm hearing shots well i mean it just sounded yeah, like yeah. he was well, creating mean, evidence after the fact you know? if you're anyway, anywhere sorry. in the united states i don't care whether you're in a red state blue state white dominated state black you name it race, demography, if a police officer shoots fatally, lethally, an unarmed suspect, especially if she's a diminutive woman, that officer is put on immediately, but more importantly, the media makes sure that his identity is known almost immediately. Officer Chauvin with the George Floyd, his picture was plastered all over the newspaper within hours on the online. Everybody does right. that. We did not know Officer Bird's identity for several months. They kept it quiet. They said it was it was intolerable, racist to even suggest you you would know the name. He was going to be subject to all these threats. They and that was what was got people very angry. And then they do. And then they the media went after her and they started probing her and they said she was a conspiracy freak. She was a QAnon. That she was in a weird sexual relationship with people. It was, they just defamed her character. And they didn't really say, wait a minute, this woman was a 14-year-old, 14-year military veteran. And she was about 5'2", and she weighed about 110 pounds. And she made the mistake of going into the Capitol when she shouldn't have. And she committed a misdemeanor, probably, of going through a broken window. And she was basically executed for that, shot. And, you know, that's what it was. And yet we never heard that. So what I'm saying yeah. is they use that insurrection. And we saw it with the January 6th committee of Lynn Cheney, when the only Republicans that could be in that committee, you had to fulfill two criteria. You had to hate Donald Trump's, Donald Trump's guts and renounce him. And you had to be politically inert with no political future. Lame duck. And if you fit those two criteria, you could be on there. No cross-examination. Most of the videotapes and a lot of the transcripts are missing. And you could railroad that through and convince America that this was a full-fledged insur armed insurrection. And then hysteria followed. You weaponized Washington, 30,000 federal troops. You put Bob wire, everybody. And then you tell George, 
Joe Biden to mention it every time you can. Democracy was almost destroyed. And then you get Matthew Rosenberg from the New York Times, Pulitzer printing, left-wing journalist, he says, in an ambush interview with Operation Veritas. What are you talking about? It was fun. It was no, these, get a grip. I walked out. There was no danger. I saw all these FBI informants. And now we're told 30, 40, 50 informants, 60, 70, might be even 200. What is so hard with Christopher Ray just coming before Congress and saying, okay, this is the number. We had 182 or 174. Why doesn't he say that? Can't say that. And so there's something that nobody's talking about January 6th. Tucker did, and he got fired. You know, I'm not saying that that was the reason, but they did tell him not to air that anymore. They being, yeah. I guess, the News Corp board. But uh, nobody wants to know that full epic. The Epic Times has a great documentary out. I, I urge everybody to watch it. It's kind of like the George Floyd documentary by one, the wife of one of the officers who was in, I guess, uh, incarcerated and she's got things in there that you never knew oh okay and everybody should watch that because nobody in may of 2020 said george floyd is a habitual felon who violently had a home invasion put a pistol at a pregnant woman's stomach had been arrested a year before and resisted arrest at this particular occasion the police were called because he was in the act of trying to pass a felony counterfeit currency. He was told to sit arrested and be quiet. He resisted continually arrest. He suffered from cardiovascular disease. He suffered from the effects of, I guess, a prior COVID infection. He suffered from high levels of dangerous drugs in his blood. He may well have taken drugs to hide them during the arrest process. And the initial autopsy report did not suggest that Officer Chauvin, with that grotesque grin on his face, I think that was the most incriminating thing that got people so shocked. He seemed to not be worried about when he said, I can't breathe, he should have stopped. Even if that wasn't the cause of his breathing, that was more internal because of the drugs and his physical condition. Nevertheless, he should have stopped. But the point is that that's far from the idea of a renegade policeman deliberately picking on an innocent victim and putting a knee and breaking his windpipe or suffocating him. And yet that was used, that crisis was used to cause untold damage, destruction, and death in our major cities in the ensuing three years. Smash and grab, carjacking, police forces shattered, mass retirements, uh, all-time highs in murdered police officers, 23 and 22, epidemic of attacks on law enforcement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's yeah. what I was trying to talk about, the historical style. And I was trying to channel the political scientist, a man of the left in the 1960s, Richard Hofstetter, wrote a seminal article. I think it might have been in Atlantic. I'm not sure. It was called the paranoid style in American politics. And he's it's been widely refuted, Jack, but his point was it was it's full. If you read it, I, I read it again. It's got a lot of Freudian lingo and all of this about paranoia. And his argument was that Barry Goldwater uh, was nuts, paranoid, right. and saw a commie under 
every bread and and was in the McCarthy, Joe McCarthy strain, which I don't think he was. And uh, therefore, that was endemic among right wing people. You know, you, you could see it in Dr. Strangelove, the characters that everybody in the right was worried about fluoride in the water. Pretty, you know, it's it's something to be worried about. And precious bodily fluids. And these people are crazy. And it's it's typical of the Republican Party. But I was saying, yeah, no, the thing that's really typical is the hysterical style of the left, because they yeah. have an agenda that never appeals to people at least since the modern welfare state was created. And wow, they have to have a crisis to gen up so they can push through legislation that no sane person would would support unless they thought they were going to die from COVID or the 32 depressions right. back, or they were going to walk outside and there was going to be a policeman shooting them down or COVID. You yeah. know, it, was, it was everywhere and we were all going to die of Ebola type disease. Yeah. Grandma's dead because you 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 looked at her. <laughs> it's just yeah. insanity. insanity. Well, Victor. Um, anyway, that's it. Yeah. No, so I want to recommend folks uh, if they want to see that piece, go to Victor's uh, website, The Blade of Perseus, VictorHanson.com. You'll find it uh, there. We're about at out of time and this is this is the point where i will make a little pitch for what i do uh i write civil thoughts a free weekly email newsletter sent by out by the center for civil society at amphil where we are determined determined to strengthen civil society it is so damn important to the success of the united states so um what do i do in civil thoughts i Propose here's 15, uh, 14, excuse me, uh, articles I've come across in the previous week that I think you will enjoy or find interesting. I give the ex an excerpt and the link. It's free. Uh, go to SybilThoughts.com and sign up. We don't sell your name or any any jazz like that. Hey, I, I haven't mentioned this in a few uh, podcasts, but if you're interested in following Victor on Twitter slash X, uh, at VD Hanson, that is his handle. On Facebook, there's VDH's Morning Cup. And there is a friendly, not official, but a very friendly group, the Victor Davis Hanson Fan Club that is on Facebook. Wonderful people. It's about 60,000 members of that. Um, okay, so that's all that. And then okay. folks can... Can uh, well, the, I just have to read one lovely comment made by the way, Victor, about the the piece you've uh, written on hysterical style. Um, this is a comment put on your on your website. It's from Les Lewis Bowles, and uh, Lewis writes, "You, sir, have the ability to put into a few short sentences the very things that are so very relevant to our current situations." When I read your articles. I'm reminded of the late Charles Krauthammer. There is no higher compliment I could possibly make. Thank you for all the great work. Thank you, Lewis, and everybody else who leaves comments there or those who leave comments and rate the show on iTunes and Apple. We appreciate uh, all of that. So, Victor, you've been terrific as ever. Um, I look forward in tomorrow, and tomorrow being a Friday of, jeez, uh, I, I don't know, is that the 27th, something like that, the 26th, to listening to you and Sammy, as you will no doubt be discussing the uh, New Hampshire primaries and the state of American politics at that point. 
But uh, that, that said, thanks for everything, Victor. Thank you folks for listening. And we'll be back soon with another episode of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening once again. Much appreciated. Thank you.